Conspiracy One, and I'm your host, Cody. It's a little different this week. I am flying solo. Um, my co-host, Heath, he had some family coming in this weekend, and with Mother's Day on Sunday, we weren't able to get a time together where we were able to record, so I'm flying solo for this one. This uh, topic is was actually not on the docket for the next probably, I think, like eight episodes that we had scheduled uh, that we had written out that we were going to cover. So we're going off topic. It's going to be a little bit different, uh, a little bit different of a layout. Um, But I think it'll be fun. And hopefully, since it's just me, I don't bore you to death. But we are going to start. We're going to talk about Skinwalker Ranch uh, is the main topic of today. But <laughs> I've got a funny uh, it's kind of funny and kind of messed up story that I'll tell you guys first. So last week, uh, I think it was uh, not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before last. I took my dog out for a walk. We we're walking around and we took a little different route than we normally take. And we walked down by the pond and I saw what looked like trash in one of my one of the bushes down by the pond. So. I reached in, God, I was just going to throw it away. And when I pulled it out, it looked like what appeared to be a payroll check. And it was all there. It was just out of the envelope. So I sat down, I looked at it, looked it over. It had, I won't divulge the name of the company, but it had the name of the company on it and it had an address and it had a phone number on it. So even being a Sunday, I called the phone number just to see if I could get a hold of somebody. And somebody did pick up and it was a distribution center. That's like an hour and a half to two hours away from my house. So it's kind of weird anyway. But I told them what had happened and everything. And it just didn't sit right with me that the name of the company was different than the number that I'd called. So I actually found the company that was listed on the check and I gave them a call and left them a voicemail. And they called me back. They called me back the next day. And I was told by the distribution company that I'd get a phone call the next day. But I got a phone call from the company on the check the next day. And the guy was like, we don't even do physical checks. We only do direct deposit. He's like, come to think about it. I just got a phone call not that long ago from a woman that was like an hour or so away from their headquarters. And their headquarters is like three hours from my house. And he's like, they had the same name on the check. but..." It was for a service that we don't even provide. Oh, I don't know. As I told him, I said, I don't know. I I just, I found it in my yard, you know? And he was like, well, it's, like, it's just weird. He's like, I said, well, I don't have the check on me. I said, uh, but I can send you some pictures and stuff and you can kind of figure it out for yourself. And I no more than got off the phone with him. And I got a phone call from the distribution center, which by the way, he said he had no work in that area that the distribution center was in. But I got a phone call from them that told me to put return to sender on it and send it back and they'd make sure whoever it was for got paid. I was like, ah, this is, this is sketchy now. So I called the sheriff's department and uh, asked them 
you know, told them everything and asked them what to do with the check. And they're like, uh, call the state police because you're crossing state lines. Like, son of a buck. So I called them and they had me bring the check in. So after I got off work, I came home, I got the check. I had to be at the high school for my brother's senior night by five o'clock. I got off work at like 3.30. So I'll fly home, get the check, go to the uh, state police post. I go in and I'm like, I've got this check. I don't know what to do. They take me back. I have to write out a statement and everything and record my statement, all that stuff. So they could turn it over to, ten- uh, to uh, Tennessee State Police. The whole time I'm thinking like, I was just trying to be a nice guy. Like, make sure whoever this was didn't, you know, lose their check and losing out on this money. And next thing I know, I'm in the middle of a stinking payroll scam. It was it was a rough start to the week last week. I can tell you that. <laughs> but I had to get that off. Like, it's just been, it's been a whirlwind. But anyway, we are talking about Skinwalker Ranch. I know that was completely off topic, not even in the realm of what we're talking about, but Anyway, we're talking about Skinwalker Ranch, and um, this episode, I'm going to focus more so on the Sherman family and kind of their experiences while they lived at the ranch, and just talk about some stuff like that. Sherman Ranch, better known as Skinwalker Ranch, is a 512-acre plot of land near Ballard, Utah that it's shrouded in mystery and is a hotbed of paranormal activity from UFOs to creatures and uh, reported um, poltergeist activity. Like this place just runs the gambit of activity and it's pretty wild. Now the area has been known for years prior to the Shermans acquiring the land in the 90s as UFO Alley. And the land itself has been home to stories of skinwalkers for centuries. Now, skinwalker, um, some of you may know, but we're gonna we're gonna dive into what a skinwalker really is and kind of the lore behind it a little bit. So, a skinwalker is a creature of Navajo legend, and it's a type of harmful witch that possesses the ability to transform into, possess, or disguise themselves as an animal. Now, the Navajo called these witches, and I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to do my best. Uh, but ye naldlushi. That's, that's probably way off, but uh, it roughly translates to with it, he goes on all fours. Now, the skinwalker is just one of many types of Navajo witches. In their culture, it kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, there's many different witchers and healers, and Uh, different things. So it's not anything out of the ordinary for their culture. And there's many, but there's many types of witches, uh, but the skinwalkers are considered to be the most dangerous and volatile. Now the stories aren't exclusive to the Navajo. Uh, The Pueblo people, the Apache, the Hopi, and the Ute, and various other groups also have their own versions of the skinwalker. But in each story, basically, a malevolent witch can transform itself into an animal. And to become a skinwalker, he or she must be, uh, must be initiated by a secret society that requires the most evil of deeds, such as killing a close family member and most often a sibling. 
Now, after this is done, the individual acquires supernatural powers, which give them the ability to shapeshift into animals. Oftentimes, they are seen in the forms of coyotes, wolves, foxes, cougars, dogs, and bears, but they can take on the shape of any animal. And they wear the skins of the animals they transform into, and this is where you get the name Skinwalker. They would also sometimes uh, wear animal skulls or antlers on their heads, which would bring them more power. And they would choose the animal that they wanted to transform into based on the needs of a particular task, whether it be speed, strength, endurance, uh, stealth, claws, teeth, etc. And they may transform again to evade pursuit. But uh, because of this, it's considered taboo by the Navajo to wear the pelt of any predatory animal. Now, sheepskin, leather, buckskin, those are all acceptable, but predatory animals like wolves and cougars and foxes and bears, it's considered taboo. Like It's a no-no for the Navajo. Now, skinwalkers also have the ability to take possession of the bodies of human victims if a person locks eyes with them. So once they take control, they're able to make their victims do and say things that they wouldn't otherwise say or do. But along with human victims, it's believed that skinwalkers have the ability to control the animals of the night as well, like wolves and owls, to do their bidding, and even call up spirits of the dead and reanimate the corpses in order to attack their enemy. So that's the lore behind skinwalkers, uh, just in a nutshell. It goes a lot more in depth if you want to really kind of look into what skinwalkers are and what they can do and the powers that they possess and things. But that's basically it in a nutshell, and it kind of tells you where the ranch gets its name from. But now that we somewhat have an understanding as to what a skinwalker is, we're going to get into the Sherman Ranch or Skinwalker Ranch. Now, though the ranch in Utah is far from any Navajo reservation, It is near, and I believe it even butts up to, a Ute reservation. And it's long been thought that the Navajo put a curse on the Ute tribe in retribution from uh, many perceived transgressions. And in return, the Ute people and their land have been plagued by skinwalkers, which would explain why some of the phenomenon happens at the ranch the way that it does. Now, I'm sure... Some of you are probably familiar with Skinwalker Ranch. It's become kind of infamous due to um, a documentary and a series that's on TV. And I think you can actually watch it on Hulu, if I'm not mistaken. But those of you that aren't familiar with it, you might hear something new. If you have seen any of the documentary or any of the series, probably not going to tell you anything that you haven't heard. But if you're not familiar with it, this place is uh, interesting to say the least. Now, the ranch was purchased by the Sherman family in, I believe, 1994, uh, and it was subsequently sold in 1996. And Terry Sherman was a rancher and a cattle breeder, and his wife, Gwen, had worked at the local bank for around 20 years. When they found the ranch, it had been sitting vacant for about seven years, and they couldn't really understand why such a prime piece of of real estate had been vacant for so long. It was their dream ranch, and it was a perfect place, or so they thought, to raise their teenage son and their nine-year-old daughter. 
And at first, it wasn't anything too odd that seemed to happen other than some large circular impressions that Shermans kept finding in their pastures. And not long after they had moved in, supposedly a very large wolf. I can't remember exactly how large it was, but abnormally large wolf actually walked up to the family. Like I said, it wasn't long after they'd moved in and they were outside and this wolf walked up. It allowed them to pet it and everything. It was very friendly, but it uh, approached the family and not long after it approached the family, it kind of wandered off a little bit and it stuck its head through the fence and actually grabbed a hold of one of the Sherman's calves and tried pulling it through the fence. And when this happened, uh, Mr. Sherman grabbed a stick and started beating this wolf to no avail. It had no effect at it on it whatsoever. So he went to his truck, got a 357 Magnum, and shot the wolf. And again, no reaction whatsoever. He shot the wolf two more times with the 357, and he had his son go and get his uh, rifle, which I think might have been a 308. I can't remember for sure. But he shot the, uh, shot the wolf again multiple times with the hunting rifle and still, you know, no real reaction from the wolf other than a chunk of fur being blown off. And when this happened, the wolf just kind of turned and looked at him like it was basically annoyed and then just kind of trotted off. And when it started running off, um, Sherman and his son uh, started tracking the wolf and were going to run it down. But as they followed it uh, for a, a good long ways, they kept following its tracks till they came to a creek and it was like the wolf just vanished into thin air. Like it didn't even, was never even there. And it's not the only report of like a strange creature or animal. There's also a, uh, there's a number of weird animals that they reported. And another one was a beast that looked similar to a hyena. And I think they, uh, I think they said it was like a hyena on steroids. And according to journalist George Knapp, they saw the creature attacking one of their horses before it disappeared and let, leaving behind only claw marks on the horse's legs. And But this same animal was seen by others, so it wasn't just them that were seeing it. So they weren't like hallucinating. The wife of a local cop noticed a creature that fit the description to an extent at the Skinwalker Ranch, and a visitor to the ranch spotted a uh, very large animal that ran 100 yards in a matter of seconds and reportedly roared loudly. So those are kind of your skinwalkers. And where it really kind of gets its name are these creatures that keep showing up around the ranch. But pulling back a little bit to the Sherman story here, uh, as I said, at first there wasn't anything too odd other than the uh, meeting with the wolf and uh, some large circular impressions that they kept finding in their passengers. Now, one of these actually formed a 30-foot triangle, while others uh, were kind of a circular configuration that measured about three feet wide and about one to two foot in depth. 
uh, and the earth inside the holes that it made was firmly packed down. Like it was done either from an impact or a machine. Now it would be around this time that Terry would start to have trouble with his uh, herd of cattle as cows began dying inexplicably. And in April of 1995, things really started to escalate. Now one evening, while checking his cattle, Terry saw a glowing object silently pass over a 50-foot tall bunch of poplar trees on the edge of one of their fields. A few days following this, his wife Glenn's or Gwen, sorry, his wife Gwen saw another unexplainable object that she described as looking like headlights, but they were a little ways off from the craft. She said it lit up the entire side of the mountain as if it were broad daylight. Now, due to these sightings, Terry began examining his cattle's deaths a little more closely. And the first cow that he found, not long after a UFO sighting, had a single hole in the center of its left eyeball, and predators in the area hadn't touched the carcass. Now, Mr. Sherman also noted a chemical smell in the vicinity of the dead cow, and it wasn't long a second cow was found dead with the same hole in the left eye. Now, with both animals, Mr. Sherman took a wire and inserted it into the hole to kind of gauge the depth of it. And in both cases, he said that the wire reportedly slipped easily to the center of the brain. Now, also during this time, some of the Sherman's cows started just literally disappearing. Uh, Terry was even quoted as saying that they con- uh, he said, we contacted everyone, we looked everywhere, they just vanished. And uh, in one instance, Terry actually followed the tracks of a cow in fresh snow, and the tracks just stopped. Much like the wolf that he had encountered, the tracks just seemed to disappear and vanish under some trees at the edge of one of its fields. The area around the animal's last steps was surrounded by a circle of fresh twigs and branches, which Terry uh, could see had come from the trees above. So you've got these circular impressions that have been showing up that are about three feet wide and, you know, the 30-foot triangular one now where this cow's tracks just miraculously stop. You have a circle of twigs and branches that have obviously fell from the trees above. So it's kind of weird, the instances that he's talking about. But over the next few months, After this, the Shermans had a variety of uh, UFO encounters, and mutilation activity just continued. Now, the most uh, spectacular phenomenon that they observed when it comes to the uh, aerial phenomenon uh, was described by Mr. Mr. Sherman. He said, we would see these 100-foot circular openings appear in the air. It was like four orange-colored doorways would sort of spiral open. Looking through a high-powered scope, the Shermans watched as smaller craft would emerge from the hovering portals, fly around the property, then re-enter the doorway. The Shermans described the stealthy smaller craft as being about 60 by 40 feet and squarish with short wings. Smaller craft looked like they were flying a grid They also appeared to emit uh, sparks of light, uh, which would hit the ground. And the Shermans thought this 
uh, to be some sort of navigational system, which it's kind of weird that he talks about this. Like there's a portal opening and these crafts are coming through because it plays into some other UFO theories and phenomena when it comes to extraterrestrials and extraterrestrial craft as them not necessarily being intergalactic, but possibly being interdimensional beings that are traveling from a different dimension to ours and doing whatever they do. But in a rare occurrence, the Sherman son uh, found a mutilated cow within about five minutes of his death. You know, just an estimate. But the young man had seen the, uh, the cow eating peacefully and moments later had returned to find it dead. Now, in this one, the cow's rectum had been poured out, if you will, with a six-inch wide hole that was about eight inches deep, which is kind of eerie to think that in a matter of moments that this could have happened. Now, during that summer, Harry and his son and uh, his nephew had heard uh, voices that he could, they couldn't really understand. They're unintelligible voices while standing in a nearby pasture. The sound, they first assumed that the sound uh, might be echoes of a CB radio, uh, and they seemed to emanate out of you know thin air above. And as they listened more closely, they could distinctly hear two voices speaking in a language that they couldn't understand and which uh, Mr. Sherman described as choppy. Uh, it was choppy, anti-halting like cross between Russian and Native American. One voice had a deep, resonant tone, and the other was more higher-pitched. Uh, Mr. Sherman said that he yelled into the air, We can hear you, and the voices stopped momentarily, and then the deeper voice broke into a low, rumbling laugh. The conversation then went on as it had before. So it's kind of like they were toying with them a little bit. Now, we get into the fall a little bit here of that year, and the events seemed to be moving kind of towards a climax. They were seeing the lights in the field. One night, Gwen grabbed her binoculars, and when she focused in, she was shocked to see a square-lighted structure sitting on the ground. Now, before the light blinked out, Gwen caught a glimpse of a large, heavy-set individual seated in the object. A short time later, the craft appeared again. This time, both she and her husband, Terry, watched through a uh, 60-power uh, spotting scope, and they could see a figure standing next to the object. Mr. Sherman described the person as being over seven foot tall and decked out, fully clothed, in a totally, completely black uniform and very large. Sherman's noted that the being appeared to have a visor or something shiny on its face because of the way the light glinted from its head area. So that's, you know, kind of a precursor to, you know, the escalation. Then it starts to escalate beyond the cattle. It starts moving into, I guess, a little more personal dealings a little bit. Because up until this point, it had been nothing but, you know, the encounter with the wolf and um, the impressions left from what they could only assume were these crafts that they had been seeing. But uh, another phenomenon that happened really kind of startled and really shook uh, the Shermans. The family started noticing glowing blue balls moving around the property. 
and these balls kind of gave off a crackling sound a little bit, uh, almost like firewood popping. And they seemed to be intelligently controlled and could either hover or move incredibly fast. And one evening, the Shermans watched as a blue ball approached one of their horses. The light hovered within about a foot of the horse's face uh, and spooking it. Uh, but from a distance about 10 feet, wind shined a flashlight on the blue globe and it retreated. It then approached Terry as if it was inspecting him. And Terry described it as a glass ball about the size of a baseball, which appeared to contain two blue fluids, which intermingled with each other. Uh, Terry said it was the, uh, the scaredest he'd ever been in his life. Now, later that evening, the blue balls turned, and this time it hovered in the face of a cow. Again, the globe retreated, and the Sherman's three dogs, uh, after a little bit of coaxing, took off, chasing it in hot pursuit. Now, Gwen and Terry watched as the dogs followed the uh, glowing globes into a wooded area. They lost sight of the ball, and then they heard a piercing yelp. The dogs did not return. Uh, the Shermans decided that they should wait until morning to investigate. And the next day, uh, Gwen and Terry found three burned circles in the woods. And in the center of each circle was a kind of greasy blob of what looked to be, um, as they said, shortening or, or butter. The trees above uh, the burned rings also had a scorched appearance. And according to Terry, the grass eventually grew back, but the tree limbs died. So you can only assume that these spots that they found were liquefied dogs. These balls had somehow liquefied their dogs. And worried that they could uh, no longer guarantee the safety of their children, they decided to call it quits, and they put the ranch up for sale. Now, this is about two years of activity they experienced. If I'm not mistaken, they bought the ranch in 94 and they sold it in 96. So they decided to put the ranch up for sale. And uh, Terry later said that uh, there were some really odd things about the place that they noticed when they moved in uh, and they should have known that something was wrong, but it was the ranch of their dreams. So they kind of overlooked these things a little bit. The ranch's previous owners had no children and had lived there since the 30s. Now, Mr. Meyer had died 15 years prior, and Mrs. Meyer lived there by herself for seven more years before she died. When the Shermans moved in, they noticed uh, heavy dog chains bolted by each, other, or by each of the four exterior doors, and the Shermans assumed that you know they just had a couple, uh, the couple had a dog, which they moved from chain to chain to keep it out of the sun. Uh, when Terry asked about the dog from a uh, Terry asked about the dog from a previous ranch hand, and he was told no. The Myers had four huge, ferocious dogs, which they kept chained by each door. They uh, the Shermans also noticed a uh, the Shermans also noticed another odd feature of the house, where uh, inside of every door in the house, it was fitted with a heavy deadbolt. And at the center of the house was a hallway with its access doors bolted. In the hallway was a closet with a dead bolt and inside, uh, on the inside of the closet door. So every door in this house had a dead bolt and the access points 
in the hallway were bolted shut. Now, after their decision to sell, uh, Terry fell into a conversation with a group of Ute Indians who worked at the local water department. The Indians told Terry that they had uh, formed a pool to take bets on how long the Shermans would last at the ranch. The longest guess was a year and a half, but they had lasted two years. A local Indian shaman, who was a friend of Terry's, told him that there were tribal songs about the spirits and spooks of the ranch uh, going back at least 10 generations. And the shaman said that the area was considered unholy ground and was on the path of the skinwalkers, which we you know, talked about earlier with the uh, believed Navajo curse on the land. Now, uh, among the many curiosity seekers at the ranch, in the Sherman's final days was a man who identified himself as a naval intelligence officer from North Carolina. Uh, the man sympathized with their situation and had a great interest in reviewing their photos and videos. Another man that wasn't as polite as a naval officer lurked around the property in a white four-wheel drive vehicle, and Terry noticed that it had different plates every time he saw it. And after a very angry confrontation, Terry took the man's photo. After a little detective work of his own, he determined that the man was an agent with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations out of Hill Air Force Base. The uh, Shermans spent their last days on the ranch rounding up their cattle and uh, dead tired by uh, late in the evening. They locked all the doors and uh, saw their, watched their children go to bed. Now Gwen and Terry took showers and then fell into a deep sleep. The next morning, they woke up to find their bed covered with blood, and they both had eighth-inch-deep scoop marks in the same place on their right thumb. So, this is it. This is their last straw. They were getting out. So, selling the ranch had uh, posed a bit of a dilemma for the Shermans. They didn't want to put anyone at risk, as Mr. Sherman said. And at the suggestion of several different researchers, the Shermans were put in touch with a Las Vegas millionaire named Robert Bigelow, who had invested substantial amounts of money in UFO-related research. And in September of 96, a deal was finalized, and Bigelow bought the ranch for less than the Shermans had paid for it, but they were just glad to get out. Terry also uh, sold Bigelow a select herd of cattle, and was hired on as an overseer for the operation. As part of the deal, the Sherman signed a non-disclosure agreement, which barred them from making any further statements about the ranch or their experience. But uh, meanwhile, the Sherman family had relocated to a ranch about 20 miles away. Now, according to a man named uh, Zach Van, I think his last name Ike or Ick or something. Hard to pronounce. It's spelled E-Y-C-K. But according to him, he noted in one of his articles that some researchers were claiming that uh, Bigelow and uh, his organization NIDS, um, which was the National Institute for Discovery Science, according, according to him, Bigelow and his recently formed group, which was the National Institute for Discovery Science, or NIDS, uh, had turned the ranch basically into a paranormal laboratory. With keep out signs posted everywhere, the ranch was fenced off, gates were locked, um, and Bigelow's workers 
uh, created an observation tower and a pair of scientists and uh, veterinarians were moved in. 1,200 letters were sent to local ranchers asking for their cooperation in reporting missing or mutilated animals. And as Zach noted in one of his articles, some researchers were claiming that Bigelow and NIDS are a front for CIA activities. Now, these conspiracy theories were fueled um, by the addition of retired Army Colonel John Alexander to the NIDS staff. Alexander had recently left his position as director of non-lethal weapons testing at Los, Ange uh, Los Alamos National to join forces with Bigelow. And a uh, Wired magazine reported in 1995 that Alexander had a resume lifted from the X-Files. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists in 1994 said that Alexander would make a splendid character in a science fiction novel. So this dude is, he's out there. Um, now, although Bigelow and Alexander uh, won't discuss the things on the ranch, uh, in recent weeks, locals have noted some unusual helicopter activity over the site. And on one occasion, two black military helicopters scanned the property at about 10 feet above the ground. And another time, a group of five military, military helicopters did multiple sweeps at a higher altitude. At one point, a large red construction-type helicopter scoped the area, dangling a 12-foot-long black cylinder beneath it. Now, meanwhile, at the water department, the local Utes are starting another bedding pool, or they were starting another bedding pool on the Bigelow's adventure. Uh, as one of them was recorded saying, they're dealing with something they can't even dream about. So that's just kind of the Sherman's experiences there. Now, the ranch, if I'm not mistaken, has been sold again. It's either been sold again or they have shifted focus i can't remember exactly uh what exactly has been done i'm still looking into it still researching it i've only done what the sherman's experienced so far um i've kept myself from watching the documentary and watching the series because i wanted to look into it myself first and i'm gonna follow this up i don't know if it'll be next week's episode or if it'll be something that we do a little bit further down the road uh with heath and i together but I'm going to look into it a little bit more. And the next time that we talk about it, we'll get more into things that have happened a little bit more recently. Because these experiences only account for uh, 1994, uh, 92 to 94, up until about 1996, maybe 1997. But it's, it's interesting. It's a weird place. And it kind of pushes us a little bit into uh, the next few topics that we're going to talk about that Heath and I have uh, researched for the podcast. We're going to get into some aliens and some UFOs and uh, USOs as well. So I thought it'd be a neat little thing to kind of jump jump start some of that stuff. Hopefully it wasn't too boring. Just listen to me ramble on about it. But I find this place incredibly interesting, and it checks so many boxes for me. And this didn't even cover all of 
the Sherman's experiences. These are just kind of the the big talking points, the big main points um, of their experiences. So as we go into you know another episode on this, we'll dive a little bit deeper and get into more some more of the uh, paranormal type happenings that they experienced outside of the uh, the UFOs and things uh, of that nature. So hope you guys enjoyed this and I will catch you all again next week. Ready. 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 Ready.